0: When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to Scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. Both the first volume, When the Stars Disappear, and the second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Today, Mark is being interviewed by Paul Winters, a former pastor and now partner at the law firm of Wagon Maker and Oberly in downtown Chicago. Let's listen in as Paul asks Mark to explain why his second volume begins by talking about Adam and Eve, the first human beings.
1: Mark, thanks again for joining us. It's a real privilege for me and for all our listeners to spend some time thinking and talking about these important subjects. Of course, we're talking and thinking about your series of books on suffering in the Christian life. Specifically, the second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live. Last time, we talked extensively about Genesis 1 and about what the phrase, the image of God, Imago Dei, means in that chapter, and how it helps us understand the kind of world that God, in fact, created. And that takes me to something that you said at the beginning of the last episode about how if we get a handle on those first few chapters of Genesis, that will help us to see that it's our first human parents, not God himself, who are to blame for our human suffering now. And I'm wondering if you could get us started by saying a little bit more about that.
2: Sure. What that requires is for us, first Paul, to think our way through Genesis 2 and then work our way forward through 3 and into 4. The first thing we need to understand is that Genesis 2 retells the story of creation from a somewhat different perspective than Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we could say, emphasizes our role in creation. Chapter 2 concentrates on clarifying our nature, on specifying the sort of creatures God has made us to be so that we can fulfill the role that he's given us. Uh, Another way to put that would be to say that while Genesis 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, identifies our position relative to God and other creatures, Genesis chapter 2, from the fourth verse through the end of the chapter, specifies our composition. But what's important to remember is while these two accounts are different, they don't contradict each other. They're complementary.
1: Okay, so let's pause there for a minute if I could, Mark, and I can in- interrupt you. Um, there's a lot for us to chew on just in that initial comment you've made. Let me back up to something you said in gen- about Genesis 2, 4 through 25, where you say it specifies our composition. Do you mean flesh and blood, just sort of the skins and bones and blood and stuff, or if not, what is it? What do you mean? Could you say a little bit more about that? I think it would be helpful for us as we listen.
2: Yeah, it is more than our flesh and blood and bones and so on and so forth. What I what I mean by composition, Paul, is that Genesis 2 tells us about the elements in God's creation of our first parents that make us capable of hearing and obeying Him, that make us capable of being addressed by Him.
1: So you're saying composition is about the way that we're made, but not principally about my skin and so forth, my muscles and so skeleton, but it's being made in such a way that God, the creator is then able to address us. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, that's, that's helpful. Thank you for taking a little bit of time to clarify that. So if I'm hearing you rightly, then the purpose is Of those two two sections we've considered and we're considering now, Genesis 1 and 2, you're saying there are different purposes and that those purposes do not conflict. Is that fair?
2: That's right. They they complement each other. While they're different, there's no conflict. The account in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is concentrating on God's care, as we talked about last time, his care and the very deliberate way that he created a world for us to inhabit. While Genesis 2, 4 through 25, is focusing on God's special care in making us. The second chapter indicates um, that that change in perspective by first no longer referring to God as merely Elohim, which is the general name for God that he, um, that is used throughout chapter one. Uh, instead of referring to God just as Elohim, in chapters two and three, he's Yahweh Elohim. Usually the English versions translate Yahweh Elohim as the Lord God, but that's actually a bit misleading. It's misleading because Yahweh isn't a title, and Lord is. Instead, what Yahweh is, is God's personal name, the name he uses when he's making and keeping covenant with his people. So, in fact, that's the first indicator of the change in perspective. Now, the second way that this second account indicates this difference in perspective is that Yahweh's involvement with creation is, if we dare put it this way, hands-on. There's a shift in the kind of verbs describing his creative activities. The Word of God, which was prominent throughout the Genesis 1 account, and God said, so on and so forth, the Word of God is now augmented by the work of God. God no longer creates just by speaking. He now forms the man and the animals from the dust of the ground. He breathes into the man the breath of life. He plants a garden and places the man in it. He builds, we'll explain why scripture uses that term in a minute. He builds the woman and then brings the animals and her to the man. So God is, so to speak, much more personally involved with us in Genesis chapter 2 than he is in Genesis chapter 1.
1: Which is really interesting because it's not as though Moses has to put it that way. He could just say God made the man. Um, you know, any, if we have a conception of God as all powerful, uh, he could do whatever he wanted to. But there's this idea, this picture of personal involvement. Um, you use the word work. Which is an interesting word, I think, to use for the Almighty. Uh, he's if the image that's almost coming to my mind as you talk, maybe because Eden is mentioned as a gardener, but it's almost as though the gardener is in the garden. And he's sort of God is as a as a manner of speaking, is sort of rolling up his sleeves, as it were. And there's someone that's putting their hands in the earth. And they're getting involved in the development of the garden and there's a tilling of the soil and that sort of development, and that kind of hands on approach. And I think that that's a very appropriate way to put it. But if I'm right, why do you think there's this change of emphasis? Why not just simply say, and by the way, God made man and then jump to chapter three.
2: <laughs> I really like that picture of uh, God being like a gardener. Um, because we are told that he forms the man and the animals out of the dust of the ground. So his hands get dirty there. And of course, when he builds the woman, he takes flesh and bone from Adam's side. So I I think this idea that God is personally involved here and getting his hands in things is, is quite important. I think the reason why Moses put it this way, Paul, is that it emphasizes that God created us to be in personal relationship with him. That continues through the third chapter, since God continues to be referred to as the Lord God in that chapter, and it's going to have a lot to do with what went wrong when Adam and Eve disobeyed him. By recording God addressing our first parents with a command in chapter 1, verse 28. That first chapter of Genesis implies that we were created as responsible persons, but the Hebrew of chapter 2, verse 7, as I read it, makes that explicit. The New Living Translation rendered that verse, verse 7 of chapter 2 of Genesis, as, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, he breathed the breath of life, In Hebrew, that's the neshama of life, into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. The English Standard Version has a living creature, and the New International Version has a living being. But the use of neshama in the rest of the Old Testament... Establishes that when God breathed the neshama of life into Adam, He was making him a responsible person who could know right from wrong and acquire wisdom and understanding.
1: Yeah, I, I find that very compelling. Uh, I think that I think that your comment about the way that Genesis two describes the development or the building of the man and the woman is very helpful for communicating that this is. A an, a being with or for whom God had a purpose, and that purpose being in relationship with this created being, that makes sense. What's interesting to me is this discussion of neshama that you just mentioned here at the at the end of your comment. When I think of the beginning of your statement that the Lord God. Throughout the third chapter of Genesis emphasizes that God created us to be in this personal relationship with him. When I think of personal relationships, I don't normally think about it in the way that you've just described it. That is a responsible person. When I think, Oh, you know, I have a relationship with this person. It's, it's like a friendship. It's someone, you know, I'll go out and have dinner with or watch March Madness with, or it's a person I'll go on walks with. But based on your discussion of the use of this word neshema, there in Genesis 2, you're saying there's also, or perhaps primarily, an idea of responsibility. You're saying it's a person who not only can know right from wrong, who can acquire wisdom and understanding, but should act according to that with some kind of responsibility, according to that knowledge. So is that is that really the substance of what you're saying?
2: Uh, th- that's right, Paul. It's, it seems to me we want to keep a couple of things in mind here. First, God is inviting us into a personal relationship with him. But, of course, the relationship is not one of equality. The relationship involves our showing the right kind of respect and love and obedience to God because of who he is, because he's created us. Merely by having made us so that we can be in personal relationship with him, We owe showing him the honor and giving him the glory that he deserves. But when you think about it, Paul, even with regard to your human friends, you wouldn't remain friends very long if you didn't pay heed to certain norms and keep them, if if both you and your friends didn't do that. You and I are good friends, and we trust each other to tell each other the truth. If we didn't tell each other the truth, our relationship probably wouldn't last very long, and so it seems to me that responsibility and obligation are always part of personal relationships, whether it's the divine human relationship or human to human relationships.
1: Yeah, I see that, especially in the deeper human relationships that you have. It seems to me that the deeper the relationship is, the more the greater the expectation of this sort of mutual dependency, mutual responsibility, the mutual trust that you're you're talking about here. So you and I have a very dear friendship. My wife and I have a very dear friendship and relationship. And so the expectations of those interdependencies and of her sense of my responsibilities to her and my sense of her responsibilities to me are quite strong. It's not as though we're perfect in those things, but if they start to go wrong for any amount of time, then that puts a lot of strain on the relationship. Same thing with my kids, same, same thing with my law partners. Those deeper relationships and, you know, the Lord's relationship with us, of course, is going to be the most profound, really are marked by the kind of mutual responsibility that you're talking about, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, so what else else should we understand about this idea of responsibility in the context of our relationship with God? Well, it seems to me
2: that rather than responsibility and obligation pushing out affection and friendship and things like that, They actually make room for them in the way that you've just been talking about. For then we can be comfortable and not on our guard with each other. I think that Genesis 3, verse 8, by talking about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which is usually interpreted to mean that God was coming to visit with his human friends, probably suggests that it was supposed to be similar with our relationship with God that there's supposed to be this comfort that overall we would have as God would come to visit us and that we'd, of course, have with each other. Moreover, when you think about it, Jesus calls his disciples friends, but he says that they are only his friends if they keep his commandments. So friendship and laughter and affection find their home in the safety of relationships that keep norms of truthfulness and trustworthiness and obedience and so on and so forth in
1: place. So, uh, let's keep going back to this idea of what it means to be a responsible person, at least in the context of Genesis 2, and what you take it to mean that we are to know right from wrong, and that, as you said earlier a few minutes ago, that we're if I remember correctly, to acquire wisdom and understanding?
2: Well, it seems to me that when God breathed the Neshema of life into Adam, Adam became capable of at least two things. One is that he became capable of investigating the world God had so carefully made in Genesis 1 in order to be able to exercise the proper dominion over it, in order to be able to rule over it, properly. But secondly, it made him capable of hearing God address him and tell him what he wanted him to do and, even more, who he wanted him to be. So in Genesis 2, because we're told that after God breathed into the man the Neshama of life, he placed him in a garden to tend it and keep it, because we're told that, we know that Adam was created as a responsible person because he was given a task. Then he's also given an explicit commandment in Genesis two sixteen and 17. Uh, this whole thing is a commandment, Paul. The first half of it doesn't sound like it, but it actually is. You are free to eat from any of the trees in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For from that tree you shall not eat, for when you eat of it you shall surely or certainly die. Those were the words that God spoke to Adam. And what it comes to is when God said to him, you're free to eat from any of the trees in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God was commanding Adam to wander through the garden and to taste each of the fruits and take pleasure in them. So in other words, God was saying, head out and enjoy this garden that I've created for you. And then there was only one prohibition, one and only one prohibition. And that was that he mustn't eat from the tree of knowledge of of good and evil. And if he did, that in fact, on that day, as it's put in some translations, you shall surely or certainly die.
1: Yeah, you know, when you when you read this, this section of the text in Genesis 2, it it pops around a bit, it feels like to me. You know, you've got this prohibition that occurs in 17, and then you've got this statement by God that almost seems like a non sequitur. It's not good for man to be alone. Uh, we, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, we, we have this, we finally have a sense of what Adam should be doing and what he should not be doing. Now we're told... Uh, well it's uh, it 's not good i 'm going to create a helper suitable for Adam so yeah why, yeah, why is that Mark I mean, why does the text seem to move and shake the way it does, and why do all these abrupt transitions
2: yeah yeah, I, I think that 's really important paul you 'll remember that in our first episode, I quoted Gerhard von Rod observing that nothing in the creation account is superfluous, that it 's all there for good reason. So I would say that if there seems to be a shift in subject matter here, and there certainly does seem to be one, there's got to be a good reason for it. So what would that reason be? I think it's because we need to know something about the needs of persons. Persons aren't meant to be alone. They need fellowship with other persons. God has made us as earthly, biological persons. As we found near the beginning of the second creation count. God formed the man of the dust of the ground and then breathed into him the Neshema of life. So God has made us as earthly, biological persons, and both our biology, as requiring both a male and a female for reproduction, and our personhood, depend on our being socially related to other human beings. So the story from 2.18 through 24 drives home our need for other human beings.
1: You know, as you're talking, Mark, this idea of Genesis 1 and 2, and here in particular being this literary narrative of the story of us, It's the story of human beings. And as Moses is telling this story, this really beautifully rendered narrative, we're getting this real picture of what we're like and what we're made made for, our compositions, you put it, and the things that, why we're wired the way that we are. And it's just really helpful to sort of think about these opening verses of the Bible to really tell us about ourselves. So. I'm hearing that as part of that literary narrative that it's important for us to understand that we really have a need to be around other people and have those relationships that you're talking about. Tell us why this is the case or how this is the case a little bit a little bit further. Well, it
2: seems to me that that probably the most important thing, Paul, is just continuing to follow the story and see that it emphasizes the way in which none of the animals could be the kind of companion who would be just right for Adam. Uh, God, we're told, brought all of the wild animals, the livestock and the birds he had created to Adam. This is from verse 18 on. And Adam named each of them, which in fact in Old Testament parlance means that he identified the nature of each of them But as he did so, and as he finishes up, who knows how long it took, we're told, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. There wasn't any creature who could be just right for him. And so at that point, God knocked Adam out, and he took some flesh and bone from his side to build, and that is the Hebrew word, to build the woman. Now, now, by the way, usually the translations say that God took one of Adam's ribs, but we really don't know what the word means. And I think it really involves more than just taking a little bit of bone. It, it involved taking kind of the essence of what Adam was. And from that, he built this woman. To say that she was built, the Hebrew word means that God was working very deliberately and very thoughtfully to make the woman exactly what she needed to be in order to be just right for Adam. So God built from Adam's own substance a woman who could be just right for him, and he couldn't have had any creature that would be just right for him if, in fact, she wasn't taken from the very thing that he was.
1: Yeah, it's a, going back to this idea of this being a narrative for our benefit to help understand ourselves. It's really an amazing scene. I mean, you've got this going back to my comment about this sort of back and forth in the text, and you've got this. What again? Maybe another non sequitur. It's not good, or it seems like a non sequitur. It's not good for man to be alone. And then the very next thing, there's this parade of animals. This sort of, I would guess, as you said, I mean, who knows how long it took. To bring all the animals back, and then there's this curious fact that you mentioned, uh, Mark, where I just think you you hit the nail on the head, where you note that he takes the time to have Adam name them, and you've got to believe as Adam is looking at this parade of animals that it has to be dawning on him slowly. Wait a minute, you know, you know, bird, dog, you know, golden retriever, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, that it has to be. St- slowly or perhaps quickly dawning on him, there isn't a single person or creature, I should say, in all of creation that corresponds to me. He has to be saying that. So it's just this really powerful, beautiful, beautiful literary way that God uses to show Adam his need. So now we've explored the remarkable implications of the Genesis 2 account of the creation of Adam and Eve. Next time, we'll go on to ponder why God gave our first parents a command where the penalty for refusing to keep it would result in their deaths. I look forward to that conversation next time, Mark.
0: We see in Genesis 1 that human beings are the crown of God's creation. Adam was created by God as God's visible image in order to be seen as his representative in all the earth. We, like Adam, image God by listening to him and obeying his commands. And the world's order itself should remind us today of God's care and concern for us as his beloved creation. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Paul Winters. If you found this content helpful, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, and your review will also help others find these discussions as well. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and Paul, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.